Hello and welcome to Legislatures, the Inside Story, a podcast from the National Conference of State Legislatures. Your host is Tim Story, the Executive Director of NCSL. Tim talks with legislators, journalists, academics, political analysts, and others about the ideas and policies shaping state legislatures today. Tim's guest for this podcast is Nancy Kane, a historian at the Harvard Business School, where she holds the James E. Robinson Chair of Business Administration. She's a prolific writer, the author of dozens of journal articles, and several books. Her most recent book was Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. It explores how five great leaders dealt with crisis. She's also frequently quoted in the press and shares what she's learned studying leaders for more than two decades. In this wide-ranging discussion, they talk about the qualities of great leaders, the nature of courage, whether a great leader needs a vision, and much more. Kane also shares her favorite books and movies, some of which might surprise you. Here's their discussion. Hello, everybody listening to The Inside Story, National Conference of State Legislatures podcast. We are starting to get a few episodes in the can, and I am delighted that you have somehow clicked this or found this in your podcast world. Incredibly, I mean, sincerely, authentically, super excited to be chatting with Nancy Kane, who you've already heard something about her background, but is a incredibly gifted and 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 you know, kind of world respected around the world as one of today's leadership uh, scholars and theorists and historians. Thank you for joining me and being on the NCSL podcast. Pleasure to be here. Let me just say, I I just like to take just a second to kind of just know a little bit more about you. We know your bio. We know it's incredibly impressive, and your body of work is is it just speaks for itself. And of course, you uh, authored, I think, uh, what has become kind of a, an establishment book on leadership, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in uh, in Turbulent Times. We're going to talk about that. But just to get a, know a little more about you that maybe isn't in that, um, are, or where are you from? Where did you grow up? Because this is a, a national podcast. You, 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 you came from somebody's district who might be listening to this. Well, I, I, I came from a lot of different districts. I was born in Chicago. I grew, I spent my early childhood in Champaign-Urbana in central Illinois. My parents then moved our family to Orono, Maine, where the University of Maine is. My father was a faculty member there. And then they moved to Dallas, Texas, University Park. So I was part of a Dallas district in Texas. And then they moved back. I spent my high school years back in central Illinois, different district. Ed Madigan was my congressman then. That someone in this on this podcast will know him. He was a Republican member from Bloomington, from a member of Congress, and and from from Bloomington, Illinois. So I was a member of that legislative district. And then I went to college at Stanford. So that's Northern California. And then across the country for graduate school to to Cambridge and assorted places in Middlesex County. And that's where I've been for most of my adult life. I've been at Harvard for a long, long time. Got a job after I got a history PhD at the business school, a very odd duck, historian, European history, goes to the Harvard Business School, where I taught business history for a fair, a fair number of years in political economy and macroeconomics, and then got very interested in, in leaders, individual leaders. I was always a biographer at heart, and I started studying leaders from the past, but because I was at the business school, it wasn't for the sake of the past. It was to use the lessons they had learned for the present. And I've been doing that work, studying leaders in crises for about 20 years. 
So that's the that's a rough roadmap of my journey. And just one other assorted interesting piece for me is that I've always been a pretty serious athlete and I took up horseback riding, which I'd never done before in my 40s. And so I've now become a very serious equestrian. And I've learned a lot about leadership riding and jumping a horse. So if we get to a kind of interesting sidebar, that'll come into our conversation as well. Well, I hope we do, because that sounds cool. I, I feel like whatever pursuit we're wind up in, if you step back a little bit, there's lessons there about leadership, whether it's equestrianism or you're a diver or you volunteer at the food bank. You know, there's probably something there. Um, boy, am I excited about this. So, and, and uh, I have a, a great fondness for Chicago. My wife was from Michigan and spent a bunch of time in Chicago. So I, I love that city. So I don't know if you have where exactly those breaks were, but uh, I love that you're a, a Midwestern origins, but also New England and and uh, and the West, as well as Texas. Uh, so yeah, you really got a flavor for certainly the US and probably the world. I, I guess, let me, again, so you've been at Harvard now for how long? 30 some odd years between graduate school and teaching a couple of, and I have a degree from the Kennedy School as well in public policy. I worked for a year on the Hill for Gary Hart when he was a senator from Colorado. And and then I did a master's and a PhD in history at Harvard. So I've been here forever. So, but you also sort of dropped something in there, which is you understand a legislature. You probably understand most legislatures, but of course the U.S. Congress is one legislature and, and we... We live in the world of the other 50, at least domestically, there's legislators all over the world, um, as well as the territories who are, who are members of NCSLs. We're going to talk a lot about leadership. We're going to dive in in just a second. But I do wonder, like, if you, if you, again, trying to think about that path you took, did 25-year-old Nancy Kane or 21-year-old Nancy Kane think that she would be at Harvard for 30 years and be a, a you know, truly an established um, a leadership expert? You know, it was, you know, I'm not... This is, I'm not just blowing this up. You are, you know, you're really in, in a high pantheon. I, I truly believe that. It would, what would your past self say about future self? So, you know, Lincoln said in 18, I think 1864, I'm sure it was like toward the, when it was clear that the war was going to wind down. This, this is right before the election, but when the military advantage was clearly on the side of the Union, he said, I frankly confess I had no grand plan. I navigated point to point. And that's really been, a big story in my life. I wasn't, I didn't set out to, you know, on this kind of GPS track. I, I, I set out point to point. I was interested in history. So I got a PhD in history. I was interested in public policy. So I went to the Kennedy school and over the ensuing years after my formal education stopped, I've started putting pieces together, right? The navigating point to point has now become largely a, an act of weaving or interlacing and that's, and then to be able to offer that knowledge, because I work with practitioners like the folks listening to this podcast. I work with people, not primarily academics at all, or theoreticians. I work with people who get stuff done in, in the practical world. And I love, I work with doctors. I work with state legislatures. I work with state legislators. I work with philanthropies. I work with business people. I work with government officials. I work with people who get stuff done and who I try to offer lessons, insights, tools, behaviors to. And that for me is exceptionally gratifying. Well, that 
music to our ears, of course, and uh, and what a great setup because that's why I'm I feel massively fortunate that you're giving us this time. So let's jump in. Often as just a fun exercise, we'll Google leadership, and and I did it today. And according to Google, and I don't know how their algorithms work, but there were twenty point three billion hits for the word leadership in Google. <laughs> twenty billion pages on the internet that you could you could click into that would somehow give you something about leadership. So my God, what a there you could build you their libraries built on leadership, right? But you know, what does it mean to you, somebody who's established and spent so much time in this world? So the I guess the first thing to say is I study I I don't study systems. I study individuals and small groups of individuals. So I study a leader and his or her team. There are lots and lots of colleagues of mine at the Kennedy School and the business school who study systems, right? What happens in a crisis? What has to happen to the system of leadership in an organization or across organizations when you suddenly have increased levels of volatility and uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity? I instead focus on the individual and the the people that 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 person directly influences who then go out to influence other people. Second thing to say about the work I do, I'm interested much less in external influences on leaders than I am on leaders and how they lead themselves and their teams and then the impact that has externally. So I start from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. Um, again, much more of a, of a focus on individual and small group agency, right? Margaret Mead once said, never doubt the ability, the American anthropologist, of a small group of concerned citizens to change the world. Indeed, nothing else ever has. So my work starts from that place. And I've seen it over and over and over again. And I think the third thing to say about my work is it's ultimately, I think, rooted in a kind of inspirational idea about leadership. It's not that I there aren't lots and lots of lousy leaders, and it's not that even great leaders don't have lots of weaknesses and moments of despair and make lots of mistakes and fail. Most leaders, most great leaders fail more than they succeed. And that's part of why they can succeed so, so markedly with such lasting impact is because of what they've learned from failure. But I start from this definition of leadership that I stumbled on in, I want to say 2007. It's not worth going into how I found it, but I, I think it's very powerful and it's really stayed firmly in place at the center of my work since I stumbled on it. It's from an American writer. You were, we were talking about Tim before we started named David Foster Wallace, who was right. Who's not a leadership observer or a leadership scholar. He was a writer and a reporter. And he, he would, he wrote this in an essay. He wrote about John McCain when McCain was first running for president way back in 2000. And he said, he's talking about leaders as opposed to the phenomenon of systemic leadership. He said, Real leaders are individuals who help us overcome the limitations of our own weaknesses, selfishness, laziness, and fears, and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. So think about that. That's like saying leaders, right? And this is, I've seen this play out over and over and across hundreds of contexts and many, many different years and places and in situations. And he's saying leaders help us raise the bar for ourselves and acting with a leader, usually in concert with other people, we get past the boundaries. We break through the fences of laziness, fears, weaknesses, selfishness, and we do something harder and better than we perhaps knew we could even do. We certainly couldn't have done it 
all by herself. I love this definition of leadership, and it describes so much, not only of what we've seen as courageous leadership throughout history, including our own time, it also describes when you ask individuals, as I do in some of my coaching work, and I've done in small groups and, uh, and in larger groups, tell me about your lifeline. These are, you know, often very high achieving people. Tell me about your lifeline. What were the important junctures on your journey and the people on at those junctures? They will all tell you to a one that the people that really meant something to them were people who helped them do harder, better things than they knew they could get themselves to do. A coach, a rabbi, a mentor at work, right? A, a, a teacher, and so that uh, uh, a manager. So those are that's a very powerful, in my eyes, a very powerful definition of leadership. And, and, and could not apply more than in our world. I mean, the the whether it's the the speaker of the house, the senate president, or a committee chair. I mean, they're all leaders. Even the freshman members are leaders. They're leaders in their districts, and the staff, many of whom will be listening to this, have key leadership roles. So when you put that David Foster Wallace out, and I have to do a quick parenthetical, I got like three pages into Infinite Jest and, and gave up. So that's, uh, but I did love his. Uh, <laughs> he was a great journalist, you know when he. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. His, his fiction was very hard to read. His nonfiction is less, is much more accessible. Right, right, right. So anytime I, I hear that, I, all I can think of is, "Wow, that that." But someday I'm gonna I'm gonna figure that book out. But um, but anyways, um, it begs the question: How do you do it? You know, you've looked at these great leaders, and uh, and by the way, I'm a huge fan of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So when I found out you put Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that book, I was like, "Holy cow! Who who would do this?" And especially in that group, there's it's sort of a one of these things is not like the other in your group of five, um, which our listeners haven't even heard yet. But um, but but um, how do you get people to do things they don't want to do? And 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 they're like, "Oh, I I you know I, either like you said his quote, I'm lazy, or I'll lose my seat, or I, I I'll I'll lose my big donor." Or I could get fired, you know. How does a leader overcome those things? So let me just frame this with regard to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, since you mentioned him. For those listeners who don't know him, uh, the last book I the last book I published, I'm actually on, uh, at work now on a new book on three civil rights leaders during the 1960s and the lessons they learned in a different kind of moment, in a different kind of crisis, but with lasting impact. Uh, and achievement. The Fortune Crisis, my last book, was about five stories, five leaders in crisis and how they navigate through the crisis and what they learned because they got better in crisis, right? I, I have this, I start the book off saying leaders are not born, they're made and they're often made more, they're made more rapidly and they're made, they're, they're made much better in a crisis than a stable time. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Nazi-resisting clergyman during the 1930s in Berlin. He became a double agent working to try and kill Hitler in the at the very, very end of the 1930s. Uh, just an astounding story. But one of the ways, for example, just to take him as an example or to take John Lewis and how he enlisted people to join a struggle, you know, in which there were all kinds of reasons not to join the civil rights movement, not to get involved, say, in the Freedom Rides, or not to get involved in Mississippi summer of 1964, which is a hugely coordinated effort to register black men and women in Mississippi and to educate black men and women in, and children in, in Mississippi, et cetera. Each of these people who had faced the obstacle that many leaders today don't face, which is join us and you will make it killed, right? That's a pretty big obstacle. 
they, they use a couple of different really important, if you will, incentives. I don't really like that word very well, but they did a couple. Of, first, they, 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 they appeal to an unmistakably worthy mission. And in both those cases, I think, and in lots and lots of cases, it has a moral anchor to it. This is the right thing, right? This is the right thing to do, even though it's scary and it's you're threatened by by folks in power by trying to change things. This is the right thing to do. But it was a worthy mission. Let's just use that term without trying to make it too heavy and moral. It was a worthy mission. So that was really important. The second thing was there was this imp- extremely important appeal to to why this this at this moment it was critical to do it. So there's a there's a there's a time time element to getting people to move through the fences of laziness. Right? Why now? Why now? The fierce urgency of now, we heard Martin Luther King say over and over in the middle of the civil rights movement. You hear people saying it right now with regard to the climate crisis. Now, 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 tomorrow is too late. Yesterday would have been better, but now, unmistakably now. So this is a moment. And I think third, this appeal that somehow join a worthy mission and discover your own you know, kind of better, stronger self. This is part of your destiny, right? You know, I mean, John Kennedy talked about this, right? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. All kinds of really smart, effective leaders have appealed to the collective we and the element of service that is not just about a selfless kind of investment on the part of people joining a movement. It's about Join, discover fellowship in the process of doing, and discover, right, the strength and satisfaction and raising of your game in that piece. Everyone on this podcast who went into public service understands what I'm talking about here, but you have to name it. You have to keep putting it before people, especially in today's, you know, like 24-7 nanosecond reactive zeitgeist, right? Everything we do is not a transaction. And everything we do is not just for us. And we are not just here for our, to maximize our individual immediate self-interest. There's something higher, better, more lasting, and more satisfying that it's available to us. I, I kind of hear you saying that they invoke legacy. Is that fair to say? Like, you know, what will your legacy be? I think there's a piece of legacy, but that's only a small piece of it. You know, join okay. and discover yourself. So let me just again give you an example because it's very fresh hot off the press, fresh on my mind. In 1960, when in the early 1960, when a whole bunch of black and white students in lots of southern cities, but most predominantly and publicly in terms of news media coverage in Nashville, began sitting down, sitting in, sitting in at lunch counters, trying to end desegregation at places like Kresge or Woolworths or lots of other stores where you could buy a shirt, but you couldn't have a hamburger if you were black. So they began sitting in. And, and they were almost immediately arrested, even though they were all very well trained in nonviolence. And there was, there was they were arrested and not the not the hoodlums and not the white supremacists who were beating them up. The black students were arrested and the white students who, who were part of this were arrested. And for each of these people, that was like just the, one of the most frightening, particularly the black Americans. It was one of the most frightening things that ever happened. Their parents had spent their lifetime saying, don't get arrested. The shame, the, the, the potential danger. I mean, they were all just, they lived it, they were in great fear of being arrested. And as soon as they got arrested, this sense of we're all in this together, 
we're being arrested for the right reason. Never mind that the laws are wrong, but we're being arrested because we're trying to do the right thing. It strengthened them. It actually made them better as activists, as change agents, than if they hadn't been arrested. That kind of self-actualization, that kind of self-discovery, I am stronger, more committed, more interested in being a force for good than I ever knew. That's exactly what Wallace is talking about. And that's a superpower. Those are the those are the ruby slippers. And, you, and leaders have to help people understand how to put them on and click those red heels together. Yeah, good good metaphor. And 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 so when you looked at and I like I like that how you framed this earlier about how you like to look at at great leaders through history and you know sort of figure out what they did and how it came together. Um what are the common traits? It seems like too obvious of a question, but you know, are there things that are across when you look at Rachel Carson, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, John Lewis, whatever? You know, what are, are there things you've come? Um, I actually do a little presentation. It's embarrassing to tell you this almost, but like the ten things great leaders do, and I think you know the next guy or you, you know, some other person would say, I got seven things, and there'd be seven different things. But what are, what are the things you think that that great leaders do that that help them be successful? So let me start with a couple of qualifiers, and this is not really what I do, but I'm going to answer the question, and it's a good question, a very fair question. First, great leaders come in all shapes and sizes. So Rachel Carson, who for the podcast listeners that don't know her work, wrote a book called Silent Spring. It was published in 1962, and it changed the world. First, it changed the United States massively and for in lasting ways. It was a hugely important book. I think the most important book published in the 20th century in English in terms of external impact. And, and but, but and it was a book of it was a it was a book about uh, pollution uh, and the harms, the terrible harms of organic pesticides, organic synthetic pesticides. And it resulted in the EP, creation of the EPA and the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and the I mean just you. It founded the environment, modern environmentalism. It created the modern environment. One woman, shy, retiring, an introvert, no handlers, no speechwriters, no aides, changed the world. So she, you contrast her with someone like Frederick Douglass, right, who also changed the world, the abolitionist, escaped slave in the 19th century, became the most important black leader of the 19th century, or certainly the early part of the 19th century in America, and 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 without whom Abraham Lincoln could never have had the political capital to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Douglas was dynamic, charismatic, um, extroverted, uh, extremely interested in networking for his cause. So styles, shapes, ways of showing up very massively across leaders. And, and, and that's really important to say at the beginning. Second thing to say, uh, about you know what what must great what what traits what characteristics what behaviors do great leaders manifest? Second thing, um, most of I think the best aspects of great leaders are, are learned, not innate. They're learned. There's not that there isn't a huge component of nature in in the making of all of us. It's just you gotta stick that together with nurture. Right, the mileage that we all chalk up as we walk our path. So a lot of this is learned, and I, I would that that leads us to the first characteristic, or first trait, or first even behavior. One, you use your experience as a classroom to get better as a leader. So all leaders get great leaders get better. Churchill was better in 42 than he was in 41. 
Lincoln was a lot better in 65, in you know January of 65, getting the 13th Amendment through the Congress, through the House of Representatives, than he was in, in 1862. So they get better and they commit to getting better. So that's really important. I will use my experience and in the world I encounter to make myself better and to improve, increase, strengthen, right, the impact I can have in moving my mission forward. So that's that, that leads us to characteristic or trait or, you know, honed skill number two. You need a great deal of self-awareness to be a great leader, you need, and, and especially in a crisis, see, because you need to be able to, to talk not just to the head, but to the heart of your people. And you need to understand that, especially in a crisis. Thirdly, great leaders understand the power of their mission. It's not just a platitude that they spout out. Right? They understand how to make it sing for people, make it real, make it resonant, make it seep into the pores right, of a country or a company. So that, that, that ability to embrace a mission and help others do it is absolutely essential. Fourth, great leaders have a, a muscle that they access called, a resili- called resilience, and they learn how to keep accessing it. And that has to do with how you frame a very difficult situation. Resilience is the capacity in the face of usually unexpected great difficulty to, to find clarity, to harness the, the difficulty and actually make something good out of it. We call that, you know, lemonade out of lemons. Right? And that begins, that begins with the idea that if I can do that, I can keep making that muscle stronger. So great leaders get better the more stuff, difficult stuff you throw at them. Five, characteristic number five, you need an enormous amount of emotional discipline. It's not enough to have emotional awareness. You need emotional discipline. What do I mean by that? Forbearance is the old-fashioned word. By that I mean, and this is more important today than it was five years ago, because we're now living in this kind of, you know, kind of regurgitating culture that's just spitting up stuff. And so it's just so much noise and so much stuff that way TMI. We don't need to know most of what we're hearing and seeing, even on the part of leaders. What great leaders understand is that I will show up on my Twitter account, in front of a camera, on a podcast, in the chamber, on a phone call, in a Zoom meeting, in service to my mission. And that usually means that less is more in terms of what I'm saying. And it certainly means that I understand that my whole presence is part of the way I'm communicating with the people who follow me. And I have the ability, real time, to sift through what is dignified and imp- and relevant and what is not, and to choose to rise above, right, the junk that other people are spewing out to help people focus on what's important in a respectful, serious, mission-focused way. That's forbearance and discipline, and it's incredibly important. Whether you're Ernest Shackleton, who's the first story in Forged in Crisis as Explorer, who has to show up out of, and who's, who's got 28 men marooned on an ice floating iceberg off the coast of Antarctica in 1915 with no communication device. He's going to show up every day. This was true of John Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis talking to the American public. He's going to show up every day like, we got it. Not all is well, but we are, we are navigating through this. Do not panic. He doesn't say that. He can't say that. And that's, you know, that's like Abraham Lincoln, four score and seven years ago, right? Give framing the stakes of the Civil War and then giving everyone a job to do as the living, we the living, 
you know, be, are here dedicated. That that kind of forbearance is absolutely essential. One last char- characteristic that's really important: real leaders understand. This is back to the kind of you know emotional toolbox that they keep improving and keep using. We understand that actually you really have to to force yourself to continue to face forward pretty quickly. So if you're focused like lots of high achieving, highly controlling, highly successful people are, I know I know the people on this podcast because I work with them all the time. If you're really focused on what you did wrong, because most high achieving, highly controlling, highly successful people are actually very hard on themselves, and you're back here going, why did that go wrong? Oh my God, what did I do? And it's caught in those grooves of the record. You can't face forward and learn quickly from what you did and move forward. So great leaders develop the idea. Lincoln's a great example of this, who made many, many more mistakes, particularly in the beginning of the war, to like say, okay, that's a, that's a, that's a no-no. I'm not going to do that again. But now on to the next thing, and that is really important. It, it, you know, it's like the old. I think it's I think it's Matthew, where the the wonderful line of Matthew that he who plows by looking backward at the at the at the row he just he just plowed. You know, harvests no crops. So you have to be able to face forward, learn quickly from your mistakes, and face forward. And that's particularly true. When you have roiling crises like we're involved in right now, I wish the podcast were two hours long. You probably don't, but I do, and because I'd like to go into every one of these characteristics in great depth. Like, well, then how do you develop self awareness? How do you develop resiliency? Um, how do you do? How do you develop experiences? Um, you know, I was thinking of of Doug Harmershield, you know, the UN Secretary General from uh, uh, you know decades ago, who who said that the key is to just say yes to go do stuff and, and, and fail and learn and fail. But the trick is to dive in and do things and say yes. But anyways, we don't have time to do that. So um, what I think I hear you saying. Well, let me just say one thing. Let me just say one thing about that. I think that's important. Yeah, please, please. And, and that has to do with walking into the fear. So go do stuff. Well, you know, Nelson Mandela, who knew one or two things about fear, once said, not well, said several times, but in different ways, but said this. It's, it's, it's really an important quote, and it's very useful. He said, you know, courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is the willingness to walk into the, take the first step into the fear and then discover in taking that step and taking the next one, and then the next one, each one gets easier, that you can triumph over it. But you can't do that till you actually walk in, into the fear. So get stuff done also means being a first step towards a big, really important, but oh my God, so big, where do we start kind of mission. You got to take that first step. And the civil rights leaders learned this. John Kennedy learned it, right? Churchill learned it. Catherine Graham learned it when she published the Pentagon Papers at the Washington Post in the early 70s. You got to take the first step into the field. So you can't get stuff done until you do that. And that again begins first with the leader reckoning with him or herself and then putting the right, the right of the left foot forward into the fear. But, but, but what I think I hear you saying and is that there are there is no set of traits. Like leaders have these things. Is that you, you can have some amalgam of all these things and, and, that, and that, you know, and that, that leaders come from all kinds of backgrounds and, and do this. And, and I know we're, we're already running short on time. We'll have to wrap up here pretty quick. But, but let me ask you, a, a, you know, this question of, the fear of like, well, what good does it be to be a dead hero? <laughs> you know, like, how do you 
push forward when you know that you're that you you know no one writes about the 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 leaders that that fail because they they failed and we never heard from them again um, except you're saying all leaders fail right and they keep going I mean maybe that, maybe that's the key all leaders fail I mean Lincoln failed at electoral level let's just let's just cut to the chase at an electoral level Lincoln failed many more times than he succeeded that's important to remember you'll forget that he failed in his first run for the state legislature in, in Illinois, sort of five terms eventually. He, fa- uh, he, he failed in two, two, maybe, maybe if we count uh, uh, an aborted attempt, three efforts to win the U.S. Senate seat, and now I'm talking about the U.S. National Legislature, failed three times and then won the presidential election. So, it, I mean, he had to recover from all those failures. And by the way, he in the process helped form a new party, the Republican Party, when it was really clear, this is, this is in the 1850s, that the Whig Party didn't have the brief for the future. So, and, 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 and he was willing to take, they didn't think, the Whigs didn't think they, I mean, the Republicans didn't think they could win the first time they ran a presidential candidate in, in 1856. They didn't, but they thought they could win the second time. And boy, did they. And they took lots and lots and lots of congressional seats and seats then in the state legislature. So, so we got to be careful. It's not failure necessarily forever. It might be one electoral cycle or was for the Republicans, but, it's your, but they were on the side of the future and they could see it. Being on the side of the future, that's, I feel like there's a, a quote there someday. But that's important. And, and there is nothing in our world, or podcast viewers can't see this, but I'm holding up my phone right now. There's nothing in the, the immediacy of so much of the way that we interact today, which is five seconds long, often coming off uh, our, our emails or our, or our social media or our texts. Or the or everything else being pushed on the in, in our phones that helps us understand five months from now, much less two years from now. History moves forward, and it doesn't move forward only in five second intervals, right? And the victory doesn't go to those on the five second interval, even though we want to think it does. I mean, that smartphone you're holding up is only is less than fifteen years old, right? And and you know, I've been the last few uh, days at a meeting of legislators and and lobbyists and others, and everybody pulls out their phone at some point. We're in the midst of this transformation and how we convince people what you just said. That, that probably very, there's nothing in there that's going to help you solve the problems of the future. Hey, let me pivot just a second, because I, I know we don't have a lot of time, to vision. You know, everybody talks about vision. Great leaders have vision. Is that an absolute thing? You know, did Rachel Carson, did uh, Bonhoeffer or Douglas... Or, uh, or any of these folks, you know, did they sort of know where they were going before or do some of them try to do good from one day to the next and get things done? You know, talk about vision and explain what you think, how important it is. Most of the leaders I have studied had, had a worthy purpose. Was that a vision? I'm not sure. I'm, in the way we traditionally use that word, it was, it was like, what, what do I need to be, what do I need to be doing right now? But did, was that purpose about, well, we're going toward X in, in the next, you know, 36 months? Not usually, right? Not usually. Lincoln, by the way, was just beginning with some detail to think about what a reconstructed United States would look like at the very end of 1864. And he was killed too early for us to have a sense of the concreteness of that vision. Other than that, he was likely to try and give black American men the right to vote. Um, and, and to try and pass citizens, the 14th Amendment, the 14th and 15th Amendment were Lincoln's legacy. 
as well as the 13th Amendment ending slavery, 14th giving citizenship to black Americans, and then the 15th giving the suffrage to black male Americans. So, but he didn't, he, he was so busy navigating through the Civil War for a big purpose, which started off in 1861 as being, let's keep the Union together on the basis in which it was founded in 1776 or 1787, depending on how you wanted to date it. Let's keep it together. But that purpose changed, right, in the middle of the war when it became a purpose to end slavery. Now, that was a gosh darn mighty, powerful, good purpose. And Lincoln embraced it wholeheartedly when he issued that Emancipation Proclamation, no matter what you can say about Lincoln's hemming and hawing on slavery publicly before then. He was all in. All in. No, I, most people don't have any idea. So, so that's, that's navigating through a really important moment on, on behalf of something un, undeniably worthy and good. That's not exactly what we usually talk about as a vision. And I think that the, the, it's important to keep this in mind right now because, honestly, there are so many high-stakes waves that we're trying to sail over through on the sea of public policy and public citizen action in the world today that I'm not sure we need a vision. We need to figure out how to navigate through those for the right reasons. And in the doing of that, good things will happen. We got to navigate through global climate in temperature increase Right. For the right reasons. But we have to start first get stuff done. And we don't have much time in several of these different theaters, interrelated theaters. We don't have much time. So is that a vision or is that saying with God as my witness, we're going to get through these crises and we're going to do it in a way that builds lasting decency for lots of people? All right. So let, let me, that, that wonderful, wonderful way to, to sort of bring this to a close. I'm going to ask you a couple of quick, you know, sort of quick fire things. Like what about, what, what are your favorite books, two or three books that everybody says, you know, it's, it feels like a, tro a trope in podcast world. But yeah, if you, if you're telling, Hey, you want to be a great leader, read, of course, Forged in Crisis. And then after that, um, what else would you read? My favorite book in the whole world is Middlemarch, a Victorian novel by George Eliot, because it's actually a book about one's journey and the making of one's stronger self. And what happens if we don't do the work on ourselves to, to become who we're meant to be? That's my favorite book. I guess second on the list might be the modern library edition of Lincoln's writings, which if people haven't ever seen it before, is just a great single volume, you know, from soup to nuts of Abraham Lincoln's, some of his best writings, a lot of great letters. You can just open it anywhere and get some great stuff out of it. And it's a good read. So that's probably my second. And third is probably Henry V, the Shakespeare play, which by the way, is a play completely and utterly about real leadership and the making of a leader and the impact of that leadership. So, okay, and then just quickly, uh, what about movies? Uh, you know, are you a fan of Lincoln and Spielberg and Doris Kern Goodwin's version of Lincoln? Or, you know, or if you don't have time to read a book immediately, maybe you could download a movie on Netflix. I went in prepared to hate it when it first came out. This is, this is a book that's not really based on Doris's book at all. It's based on Tony Kushner's brilliant second run. He wrote two huge screenplays, and the second one is what they became the movie. If you haven't seen it or you need a fresh up, fresh, a refresher on Mr. Lincoln, I went in prepared to hate the movie. I absolutely loved it. I've probably seen it 25 times. When I need a little quick Lincoln shot, 
turn on that movie. I love that movie. I love World War II movies, and I love Harrison Ford thrillers, and I love every James Bond movie ever made. So what World War II? Are you, are you talking Private Ryan, or what are you talking about World War II movies? Uh, you know, I, I actually just watched The Guns of Navarone, which I hadn't seen, A Bridge Too Far, D-Day. I mean, you know, where do we start? The, the last two great modern movies about Churchill, The Darkest Hour, right in the bullseye World War II movies. And many of those were made some time ago, but there's been a bunch of really great, Saving Private Ryan is a great movie, but there's another 25 great movies. um, Stalag 17, Stalag 17, oh my God, that's a fantastic movie. So when in doubt, you know, there's a lot of real leadership and inspiration from a lot of those movies. So many. Schindler's List, for example, I mean, good grief. Schindler's List. Yeah, right. The Diary of Anne Frank. I mean, there's just... It's just, it, it was it was a it was a, a global crisis, and and people rose to the challenge. You know, Lincoln said in 1862, into his annual address to Congress in December, he was talking about the Civil War. He said, "The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. As our case is new, so we must think anew." And that's what happened in World War II. A crisis rose. There wasn't a playbook that we could rely on from a more stable time. The, you know, the dogmas of the quiet past were inadequate. We must think anew and act anew. And you saw that all over, right? The, the, if you will, the map during World War II. And that is what's called for now. We must think anew. We must act anew. And that's, and those kind of stories are incredibly inspiring because they're real. And because they give us a map for what we're capable of in another moment when almost everything's up for grabs here for the next couple of years. Well, you you have inspired our listeners. I can say that with confidence, and and I am just incredibly grateful for you. I know you're massively busy and have big things, so for giving us a little bit of your time. I hope we can bring you back with with our legislative uh, folks one of these days. You've been with us a couple times before, so we'll look forward to that. And uh, my goodness, uh, Nancy, that was fantastic. Thank you again. And that concludes this episode of our podcast. We encourage you to review and rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify. We also encourage you to check out our other podcasts, Our American States, and the special series, Building Democracy. For the National Conference of State Legislatures, thanks for listening. Thank you.